On this week's prequel episode, we follow up on our Robin Hood listener polls, learn about Peter S. Beagle, and preview The Last Unicorn. Oh, and welcome back to this film. This is the podcast where we talk about movies that are based on books. It's another prequel episode, another full prequel episode. So we're going to get right into our patron shout outs. I put up with you because your father and mother were our finest patrons. That's why. No new patrons this week, but we do have our Academy Award winners. And they are Vic Dangerously, Matilde, Steve from Arizona, Paul, Kat Ensminger, Jeff Niederhofer, Teresa Schwartz, Ian from Wine Country, Winchester's Forever, Kelly Napier, Gray Hightower, Eli Youngs, Gratch, Just Gratch, Shelby's Recovering from Her Season 2 Hangover, That Darn Skag, V Frank, and Alina Starkov. Thank you all very much for continuing to support us at the $15 a month level. You're all the very best. I'm sorry, Shelby, we still have not watched. We have not started Season 2 yet. We, at the t- I forgot it was coming out so soon. Yeah. And then we re- we started rewatching Carnival Row because Carnival Row's second and final season just is, I think it's coming out week by week, but it's in the middle of coming out. And I wanted to watch it because I really enjoyed the first season. We, we, we both really enjoyed the first season of that. Um, so we're watching that right now. We just got into the second season. We were rewatching the first season. Once we're done with that, we'll probably do. Yeah. We, we're going to need to rewatch Shadow and Bone because I don't remember enough of. No. What happens? Even though I've read the books twice, I think. But still, I'm gonna need a. I'm gonna need a refresher. Uh, so it'll probably be at least a month or two before <laughs> we get to Shadow and Bone. <laughs> but uh, uh, it sounds like you enjoyed it, so that's good. All right, let's see what everybody had to say about Robin Hood. Yeah. Well, you know that's just like uh, your opinion, man. On Patreon, we had five votes for the movie and three for the book. Colin Osborne said, I love the written Robin Hood stories, but this movie is absolutely a mainstay of my childhood. I'm about 15 years too young for this to have been in the movie theater for me, but we had it on VHS and I absolutely wore out the tape watching it as a kid. It's fun. It's light. It sneaks in some empathetic commentary on the privations of the rich over the working class. It has some of my favorite voice actors from that era. Phil Harris, Brian Bedford, and Terry Thomas stand out in particular. I rewatched it for this, and it still warms my heart. Well, that, that's nice. There's a little bit in there. I mean, as much as any Robin Hood story has about, like, class and... Yeah. Which is not nothing. I no. mean, it's definitely a major it's component kind of, a, of yeah, a central component of most, it most at this Robin point. Stuff. Yeah, for sure. Um, opens up for nobody said, while this is definitely not my favorite Disney movie, I'm still in awe of the animation. I love to draw almost more than anything, and maybe it's because the movie is old and the animation is less refined, but I feel like it's easy to see the human references used and the rough sketches underlying the finished product. In particular, right at the beginning of the movie, mm-hmm. like the opening shot or so, I really, no- not like after the credits. Yeah. I really noticed that. Like, I felt like I could really see, like, the. Yeah, the it's, a, it's an interesting I felt, style. I felt like it wore off a little bit mm-hmm. and looked more refined later in the movie and less rough. Mm-hmm. Maybe I just imagined that. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> I just got used to it and sort of. But I, I did particularly notice in the opening, I felt like you could really see. Yeah, like the hand-drawn, like, sketched nature of it. Yeah, it's very interesting. I do like the animation. It's I, it's not, like, 
the best animation in the world. No. But I, I do like that you can tell that it's hand drawn. Yeah. To me, it reminds me a little bit of like reading like a little golden book or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, opens up for nobody went on to say, and there's something transfixing about that. Um, so I agree. Um, imagining all the hours of love and frustration that went into every second of movement. Maybe I just haven't watched any traditional animation in a while, and maybe I was trying to distract myself from a slightly <laughs> boring film. Regardless, it reminded me of how fun it is to draw anthropomorphic animals more in a children's illustration style than a furry style. So I've had fun with that this last week, and for that alone, I give it to the movie. Also, the scene I think of with the the reed tube is from Tom and Jerry, mm. where Jerry directs bees down the tube into Tom's mouth. Yes, I do remember that. I don't think that's what I was thinking of, but uh-huh. I do remember that from a Tom and Jerry cartoon for yeah. sure. Yeah, it's been in a ton of stuff. That's the thing. It's not like it was one thing, that I think, that I recognize that from, but because it's definitely a trope that shows up in, in things from time to time. But yeah, I do remember the Tom and Jerry one for sure. Um and he took, I, I like the backhanded compliment. I like the animation, you know, distracted me from a slightly boring film, <laughs> which I would agree with. I think it's slightly boring. It's, it's not, not the, the most, most ex- thrilling, not the most exciting uh, Disney movie. That's for sure. And our last comment on Patreon was from Matilde, who said, I got into this one completely objective, having not grown up with the Disney movie and never read the stories before. My experience with Robin Hood is the three more recent adaptations, Gritty and Serious. So I was really taken aback to find that the Merry Men are actually merry and that the tone is light for the most part. I found the movie amusing with the emotional moment that landed hard, the scene with Friar Tuck and the mice got me, Mm. and quite the intense final showdown. The animation was gorgeous, but I did find the voice work lackluster in comparison. The voices sounded too old for the characters, except maybe Prince John, who sounded just right and was delightful in his own way. Then again, it's an older movie. I can excuse it. It was a bit simple overall, though. I would have enjoyed it more if I had grown up with it. As for the book, I was pleasantly surprised by it. Sure, it has its repetitions and too many songs, but it's typical for the time and genre. I loved most of the tales, the humor, and the vivacity of the style. Thoroughly entertaining with memorable characters, I have to give it the win. P.S. After reading the book, I don't know why they keep making Marion and the romance such a central part of the plot in any adaptation. It's so unnecessary, just like the dark tone the live-action movies insist on. It reminded me of the Three Musketeers adaptations. They keep removing the fun out of the original material. I'll probably find Men in Tights a more apt adaptation. I don't know about that, but maybe. <laughs> so far, I think the most accurate depiction of Robin and the Merry Men, in terms of spirit anyway, might just be the gang in the first <laughs> Trek movie. Yeah, I maybe it's been a while since uh, I've they're, watched they're, that, Yeah, they're French. I do remember that. them, yeah, being French yeah, and which is part of the joke, obviously. Yeah. But don't they also like rap in that? They sing. I, they yeah, don't. They don't rap. I thought they did like a rap verse, kind of similar to the one in Men in Tights. But maybe I don't not. think so. Uh, not that's not my memory in the first Shrek movie. Okay, I but I remember wrong. the other Shrek movies less well, so it's possible that they no. Come I do back. remember them singing. I just thought at some point during the song that they maybe not. I don't remember. Anyways, yeah. I mean, it's definitely from what you said. It doesn't sound like the Marion plot. You know, the the romance thing needs to be as central as it is in a lot of the stories. Yeah. Well, and that's what I do think is interesting about 
Robin Hood adaptations is that you could go in a ton of different directions. Yeah, there's a lot. Yeah. There's a lot of material there to work with. And and, and a it doesn't lot really of them... have like a, a focused it sounds like at least it maybe doesn't have like a focused like the, the, the wide breadth of the written work doesn't have like a focused common through line necessarily. No, not necessarily. So like you can kind of do like you said, you can kind of you can pick one of the stories and like focus on that yeah. or you can, you know, or, or you like can make pick, it a romance. You know, pick a and, theme or yeah. yeah, you could make it a romance. You could make it an origin story. You could make it a uh, class commentary. Yeah. yeah, you can do a lot of yeah. you could do a lot of different stuff with it. Uh, I, you know, I think it is accurate to say that a lot of adaptations focus a lot on the romance aspect. I really like Maid Marian as a character, so mm. I'm a little bit biased so you, to you, that. you don't mind it? You know? I don't mind it. <laughs> yeah. I, having only seen two, I will say, I mean, it's the main focus of the two that I've seen. Yeah. But the but, two that I've seen are like the least like straight adaptations. I've seen Men in Tights and I've seen the Disney one. So like, yeah. I feel like it's tough to And the, like the other thing I'll say is that I also think, you know, you could include Maid Marian and not have uh -huh. it be as much of a romance. Yeah. I mean, you could have it not be a romance at all if you wanted to. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, there probably are versions yeah. like that, I would imagine, if I had to guess. I'm sure some of the versions, she's a character, but it's not. I can't imagine every single one that has been made has been. No. Um, maybe most of them, but yeah. Well, and actually, I'll go ahead and recommend a book. Um, one of my favorite, like... I guess we could call it a young adult book. It kind of bridges a little bit between like young adult and middle, like older middle mm -hmm. grade, like the higher end of middle grade. Um, the Forest Wife. I, I, I believe Teresa Tomlinson is the name of the author. Oh. I wore that book to bits in like middle school, like early middle school. Um, it's a it's a made like a retelling focused on Maid Marian where she like runs away into the forest and becomes like a forest witch. Oh, okay. So, so you understand yeah, why I, I would like that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. And there is like at the end, there's a little bit of like implied romance between her and Robin Hood, mm. but then like he asks her to marry him and she's like, nah, nah. Yeah. <laughs> so I can't recommend that enough. Um, over on Facebook, we had five votes for the movie and two for the book. And Adam said, I'm going with the book definitely because it's a timeless piece of folklore and not out of spite for beating out men in tights in the vote off. Also, you're the only person I've ever met who loved the court jester as a kid other than myself. That's incredible. I, I truly don't know if I have ever met anybody who's seen it or heard of it. I had never myself. heard of it. We watched it not too yeah, long ago, and I had not I had not heard of it before you brought it up. I It's one of those movies that my dad loved, and mm -hmm. as soon as I was old enough, so very young, because it's, you know, it's like a family movie. Um, he, I remember showing it to me and I loved it as a kid and watched it all the time. We had it on VHS. Or yeah. Whatever. I watched it constantly. It's funny to me that I had never heard of it too, because I felt like it should have been right up my mom's alley. Yeah. It's like, like a, a classic it's a musical, classic like, musical yeah. comedy kind of like, but it's, yeah, it's, there's nothing in it that's, you know, it's, it's very family friendly. It's mm -hmm. very, yeah. I, it's very interesting to me that it's, uh, I, yeah, it does seem like something your mom's, but like, or just people in your family in general, yes. <laughs> <laughs> like your extended family would have been aware of and like been a fan of. Um, so it is surprising that you'd never, but yeah, I don't, like I said, I, nobody I know ever is like, oh yeah, that movie, <laughs> nobody knows what it is. Uh, but it's great. If you have not watched it, go check. I, I think we had to rent it. I think it was on Amazon. Yeah, I, think I don't think it's right. streaming anywhere. 
or it might have been streaming somewhere on like a service we don't have, but it's called The Court Jester, starring Danny Kay from like the fifties, I think. Uh, if you want, if you like, if you like musicals and you like comedies and you like fantasy, or you know, it's like medieval. It's not fantasy. It's it's like well, I guess fantasy, but like there's it, no magic. There's no magic in it, but it, it is like it's a, like a medieval spoof kind of a yeah. thing. Um, but it's very funny. Uh, like I said, it's a musical to some extent. There's not like tons of songs, but there's like a handful throughout the course of the movie. Um, and it's I, I loved it as a kid. I thought it was a lot of fun. So and it's aged pretty well. Yeah, all things considered, all things considered. <laughs> it's aged pretty well. Uh, over on Twitter, we had five votes for the movie, seven for the book, and one listener who couldn't decide. Kelly Napier said, I wasn't quite as enamored with the book as Katie was. I got tired of the formulaic nature of each chapter, even recognizing the fact that it's a collection of stories that originally would have been told as standalone tales. Instead of finding the book Robin lighthearted and lovable, I found his antics to be tiresome, punked-esque pranks. That's a tough one. Punked-esque pranks, mm-hmm. only ever revealing that whatever he was doing was just a joke when the person he was pranking didn't seem to understand what was going on. Did that happen a lot? Is he pranking people? He's a little bit of a prankster, okay. yeah. Also, if, as stated in the book, the Merry Men were really seven score strong. Why did the Sheriff of Nottingham have such a hard time finding his hideout? Would 140 rowdy men really be that hard to uncover? I think there's a couple things maybe going on there. Um, one is that the, the Sherwood would have been pretty dense. Yeah. Like yeah. An, an older and an, an old, yeah, an old, old wood. An old wood, and it was much larger back in the, you know, 1100s than it is now. Um, But also I think that's probably just part of the joke. Yeah. That the sheriff of Nottingham can't find this hideout. With all the, yeah. Yeah. With all these guys. With all these merry men singing and making jests. Yeah. Um, Kelly went on to say, personally, I really struggled with following the style of the writing. Listening to the audiobook was easier for me than trying to read it. And maybe that's because these stories originated in the oral tradition. Nostalgia aside, I find the movie adorable. I love the characterizations and find movie Robin much easier to root for than book Robin. I like the addition of the kids in the movie as someone to look up to Robin. I think it gives him more accountability than someone who just plays around in the forest roughhousing with his friends and unsuspecting people coming along the road who just so happen to stumble upon truly helping someone every now and then. TLDR, movie rocks, movie Robin is awesome, book Robin's frat bro approach to life is better left with the arrested development of Peter Pan's Lost Boys. Fair enough. <laughs> I haven't read the book, so I can't comment on that, but it, uh, yeah. The movie is charming. It's not my favorite. I think it's a little boring, but it is charming, and it's yeah. not, uh, I enjoy it more than, what I was going to say, I don't know. I think I might like it more than The Jungle Book. Nah, that's probably not true. I don't love most of these Disney movies from this era. I like it. In, it I it's like, a little. Like it's a little bit of a rough era, and I do think it's probably accurate to say that the kind of staying power of Robin Hood is its charm. Yeah, because if you like, 
like if you compare it to something like Sword in the Stone, yeah, Sword in the Stone is not very good. Like I'm, I'm sorry if you're a Sword in the Stone fan, it, it's not very good. It's not nearly as charming. Yeah, it has a lot of the same problems as Robin Hood, but it's not nearly as charming. Interesting. I, I remember seeing that one as a kid. I have not. That's another one I have not watched since I was a little kid, probably because it didn't make that big of an impact on me. Yeah. Compared to some of the other, you know, being growing up during the Disney, you know, Renaissance in the early '90s. So I, I'm sure that. Um, yeah, I, I would feel the same way about most of those movies from that era. Uh, but yeah, uh, it is charming. Like it is, like I said, it is, I do, I do get why people like it, even if I find it a little like, eh, yeah, kind of uninspired, I guess would be my, <laughs> my description. Our other comment, I think this is, yeah, this is our last comment from Twitter was from Shelby's in her Capybara era. Uh, and Shelby said, this isn't a Disney movie I watched much as a kid, and I always forget how thick they lay on the romance plot, possibly more than any other Disney movie, and I'm never expecting it. More than any other Disney movie? I'm sorry, I was just... Beauty and the Beast, well, I feel like. The, maybe like that's I not think, focused yes, on the... Okay. Well, and I think that is the difference here, is that <laughs> this is something that is not sold as a romance. Right, okay. That's but fair. then there that's is fair. a lot of romance okay. in it. That makes Whereas, sense. Whereas, yes. like, you know, Beauty and the Beast, right, you're yes. expecting yes. to get a romance. I was like, Beauty and the Beast, Little Mer... I was like, so many <laughs> Disney movies are, like, literally just about that. But yes, you are very aware that that's what you're getting going in. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Um, and Shelby went on to say... This type of portrayal, this idea of inevitability, is always what made, what made me feel like such a freak growing up. Of course they're in love. They've always been in love, and they will always be in love, and they could never be anything else. How foolish and naive to believe otherwise. The grown-ups are talking over here. To be clear, it's one thing for characters... To be clear, it's one thing for characters to say it about how they feel and a very different thing for other characters to assure us that this is how the romantic leads feel about each other. It's a very baby's first attempt at writing a love story to have secondary characters tell us how much the pair love each other. In fairness, I don't think this movie does this too much, but I wanted to use it as a jumping off point to talk about it a bit. When you're an impressionable kid and these characters are always right and there's people out there in the real world playing matchmaker who say these same things to real people and the characters who say it'll never happen to them are always wrong in the end, it's a problem. The whole teehee there's no free will in love thing really pisses me off because it tells anyone in the audience who can't relate to it that their feelings are wrong and that they must and will grow into a whole version of themselves whether they like it or not. This isn't at all unique to this movie, but this movie is geared toward children, and I have to say that's a shitty message for kids, so I'm putting my foot down here. The fact that Marion was cut from the movie was retroactive from the book. From the, book. Yeah. the fact that Marion was cut from the book was retroactively therapeutic for my cold, dead ace heart. The other segment Katie read was far better than what this movie did with Marion, but a scene like that might have been too much for the furries, to be honest. It was very easy to see the restraints they were working with when they made this movie. Marion was very important in the first half, and suddenly MIA in the second half until she shows up to get married at the end. Overall, the book was much more even, and I enjoyed the episodic adventures of Robin Hood collecting merry men like he's playing Pokemon Go. <laughs> yeah. It, it is a little bit like that. It is, yeah, for <laughs> sure. Uh, very interesting comment. Thank you a lot, Shelby. That's definitely uh, providing a different perspective from, you know, what we can provide on the podcast. So thank you. 
Over on Instagram, we had 10 votes for the movie and three for the book. Kiriaka. Kiriaka? Kiriaka. Kiriaka. Let us know. (laughs) Um, Said, objectively, if we're comparing Howard Pyle's collection, then I'll give it to the movie. But ultimately, I think it just depends on what you're looking for. While 1973 Robin Hood is not the best animated film in the world, it also kind of is, question mark, at least one of the best Robin Hoods, since it did win the bracket with Merry Men with with Men in Tights as a close second, as it should be. 73 Robin Hood is also used as a reference for other adaptations, film and books, so that has to count for something. Robin Hood as a concept is better when it's not taking itself completely seriously. And Pyle's Robin is, well, a bit of a jerk. He steals from more than just the rich, and he isn't necessarily giving it to the poor. There are other collections out there more aligned with robbing the rich to give to the poor, but I'm not sure if they're following the Disney model or not. If you're looking for a fun time, the two movies are better. But as far as comparing the films to a specific collection of tales, it's like comparing The Legend of King Arthur to Monty Python and the Holy Grail. It's a weird situation where both, both, both is good. Yeah, it is definitely tough to compare yeah. these, which well, we talked right, about. Yes. We were a little worried about when these were the two that ended that we knew were probably going to win. Um, we, you know... Like, I think, you know, if I was going to if you were going to ask me what I think would make for the most like maybe not interesting, but like the most direct kind of adaptation comparison, it probably would have been like maybe the Errol Flynn one or uh, Prince of Thieves. And maybe not that those are the most direct adaptations, but just that they're taken a little more seriously. I don't actually know well, if that's true of the Errol Flynn one. But, like a, a play it a little more straight. Yeah. And, and actually, I don't again, I don't know if that's true of the Errol Flynn one. That was like the swash. But I, they, yeah. That main one may take it a little more, you know, a little more comedic of an angle. Um, but that's but not necessarily incorrect. Out of line with, for... yes. Yes, I, I, it's where, it's just this one, you know, obviously with Disney's where we have anthropomorphized animals and it's, mm-hmm. you know, that's a whole thing on its own. And then Prince of Thieves is a straight up just like goofball um, satire. Men in Tights. Sorry, Men in Tights is just a straight up goofball, like Mel Brooks satire. Um, so it's, you know, it was never going to be, these two I don't think were ever going to be as direct to comp- or, you know, adaptations but i think they do make for very interesting um discussions because they are kind of so different yeah while, no for sure being, and, it, and it is an interesting thing and i guess we haven't ever really done anything super similar to this like we've done fairy tales but that is a little bit more of like a direct one-to-one comparison whereas you know something like this or if we were if we were to talk about like the legends of king arthur something like that yeah it's a little bit more like there's so much raw material to work with like we were saying earlier that you can just take it in a ton of different directions and you're gonna be hard pressed to find something that has a lot of those like comparable moments the way that our episodes usually go. Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting. It does make it for a, for a, for a fun kind of different episode for sure. Katie, how did it all pan out in the end? Uh, Well, the winner of our listener poll was the movie with 25 votes to the books. 15 plus our one listener who couldn't decide. So not too far, you know, not too, not, not a huge, huge huge gap, but you know, you gotta imagine the Disney movie is always gonna, (laughs) yeah well and you know to be fair i'm sure a lot of people are just more familiar that's what i mean yeah it's a disney movie versus a collection of stories from 
<laughs> hundreds of years ago that nobody has read. Like nobody has read Robin. Like most people have not read yes. Robin Hood. Whereas you know, it's in our collective consciousness. We're aware but most of it, people but most people have not, have not read, read any of the the works pertaining to Robin Hood in the same way that most people have not read any of the works, you know, like around King Arthur or whatever. Right. Except for maybe like one small excerpt in like a high school class, you know, like I'm pretty sure we read like one King Arthur story or something in in like one of my high school lit classes. But uh, apart from that, yeah, it's just not one of those things, you you know, you read much of. So I had a feeling the movie was going to win, but it was was closer than I expected. So that's cool. All right. Thank you all very much for commenting, sending sending us your messages. We appreciate it so much. It's now time to learn a little bit about Peter S. Beagle. No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. Peter S. Beagle is an American novelist and screenwriter, best known for his novel, The Last Unicorn. Born in 1939, Beagle was interested in storytelling from a young age. He has said that The Wind in the Willows was what originally attracted him to the genre of fantasy. Uh, another kind of gentle fantasy. I said, I don't know the what wind the wind in the, the willows is. I think um, it's, it. it's the one with uh, Mr. Toad. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a really nice copy of it out there somewhere. Mm-hmm. And by out there, I mean our living room. <laughs> yeah, not in the studio. <laughs> um, Beagle garnered early recognition as a writer from the Scholastic Art and Writing Awards. Uh, he won a scholarship to the University of Pittsburgh for a poem that he submitted as a high school senior. Yeah, he went on to graduate from the university with a degree in creative writing. And then following a year overseas, he held the graduate Stegner Stegner Fellowship in Creative Writing at Stanford University. Uh, He wrote his first novel, A Fine and Private Place, when he was only 19 years old, and followed that with a memoir, I See My Outfit, in 1965, and The Last Unicorn in 1968. Um, wild to write a memoir when you're in your early 20s. Yeah. <laughs> wild thing to do. Yeah, it doesn't sound like, it, at least nothing that you relayed sounded like a crazy life story that. No, well, I'm, I'm relaying what was on his Wikipedia yeah. page. This is pretty much it. Yeah, I guess I'd be interested to see what's in the memoir because, you know, you would think if, like, you know, it's not like he was in the war like right. or, or anything. So it, I, I don't know. It's just an interesting. <laughs> Uh, In the 1970s, uh, Beagle turned to screenwriting. He co-wrote the screenplay for the 1978 Ralph Bakshi animated version of The Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then in the mid-90s, he returned to prose fiction writing and has produced new works pretty much steadily ever since. In 2005, he published a coda to The Last Unicorn, uh, a novelette entitled Two Hearts. Uh, Two Hearts won uh, the Hugo Award for Best Novelette in Mm. 2006 uh, and the Nebula Award in 2007. Um, It was also nominated as a short fiction finalist for the World Fantasy Award. Mm. Um, And Beagle himself, over the past, like quarter of a century has won several literary awards including a world fantasy award for life achievement in 2011 and he was named damon knight memorial grand master by the uh 
SFWA. Does that stand for 2018. Sci-Fi Fantasy Writers Association? I think or so. Something yes, like that? I believe that is what it stands for. <laughs> I was going to say science fiction, but I would imagine it's probably science fiction fantasy. Yeah, science fiction fantasy. Yeah, Writers Association or something like that. Interesting. Okay. Cool. Very cool. Well, let's learn a little bit more now about his most popular book, The Last Unicorn. She is a creature of legend. In an age of sorcery and savagery. Well, what have we here? <laughs> Demons. No! And dragons. She may be the last unicorn. The Last Unicorn is a 1968 fantasy novel by the aforementioned author Peter S. Beagle. It took Beagle close to two years to write The Last Unicorn, and he stated that it was hard every step of the way. Um, Beagle came up with the idea uh, with the idea for the novel in 1962 while he was on an artistic retreat in Berkshire Hills after his novel The Mirror Kingdom was rejected. That's a very, like, writer thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> Novel gets rejected, so you go on an artistic retreat. Yep. Um, on the Wikipedia page for this, artistic retreat was in scare quotes. <laughs> I took them out because I didn't understand why they were in scare quotes. That means bender, um, I think. <laughs> this is what an artistic retreat means. He just did a lot of, drank a lot and did a lot of, like, opium or something, but... <laughs> It was the 60s. He probably wasn't doing opium. Okay. Didn't right? dropped a lot of acid. Whatever. Some acid. You know. That'll make sense later, probably. Uh, he stated that though the idea for the novel was just suddenly there. Yeah, he dropped acid. <laughs> <laughs> this, this man dropped acid 100%. That's where this came from. That's what artistic retreat means. He wrote that Wikipedia thing himself and put those square scare quotes there himself. Um, he's also said that he had, quote, read tons of fantasy and mythology since childhood. Uh, he also mentioned that he loved the 1941 book, The Cult from Moon Mountain, which is a story about a unicorn in Kansas as a mm. child. A wild place for a unicorn to be. Yeah. Um, and that uh, Spanish artist Marcial Rodriguez had given him a painting of unicorns fighting bulls when he was 17. Wild painting. Yeah. I want to see that one. Uh, well, you are going to see some unicorns fighting bulls. Well, a bull. Oh, in the movie. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the 85-page manuscript that Beagle initially wrote differs greatly from the current version of the book. Uh, the unicorn is much the same, but his original story was set in modern times, and the unicorn is accompanied by a two-headed demon named Webster and Azazel. Huh. Uh, Beagle stopped working on that initial manuscript in 1963, stating that it was, quote, a dead end, but picked the project up again in 65. The original version was later published as a limited edition hardcover titled The Last Unicorn, The Lost Version. I mean, I have not that I've read a lot of this author, but for some something about that version, the set in modern times uh, and the unicorn is accompanied by a two headed demon named Webster and Azazel gives me real strong Neil Gaiman vibes. Yeah. <laughs> or like Terry Pratchett kind of like. Yeah. I think I'm just thinking of Good Omens, probably. I don't know. Probably. But like, it, it just, it, yeah, it very, it was like, that sounds like a whole different <laughs> beast for sure. 
As I mentioned earlier, Beagle did publish a coda story to The Last Unicorn titled Two Hearts that originally appeared in the October-November 2005 issue of Fantasy and Science Fiction magazine. Uh, At the end of December 2008, Peter Beagle announced that he had written several new stories, which were directly or indirectly linked to The Last Unicorn, and in 2017, those stories were collected into a short story collection titled the overneath what a name truly it is <laughs> that that gives me pratchett vibes yes for sure <laughs> the overneath i feel like all these guys know each other they all know each other they all, they know all, each other. The same, they yeah. all go on benders together yeah. i'm sure i'm joking when i say they all write artistic the same. retreats but yeah <laughs> i'm sure i could find a quote somewhere where neil gaiman says that peter s beagle was a huge like impact on his writing yeah whatever whatever yeah they all know we were just talking about neil gaiman is is freaking in the in watchman yeah he's in the he's in the uh, whatchamacallit at the beginning like the first the dedication page. dedication <laughs> thanks neil gaiman and yeah i know him and terry pratchett for, and then well, yeah we know that him and douglas pratchett adams each other. I think yeah. was friends with, they're all yep british white guys <laughs> well yes <laughs> Oh yeah, I mean Peter. Peter he's he's American. American? Um, but also writers hang out with other writers. I get it. I'm not hating. I like them all. I'm just. This <laughs> is very funny to me. Um, so back to the last unicorn. The novel has sold more than six million copies worldwide since its original publication. Uh, it's been transferred into at least twenty five languages. As what Wikipedia said, I'm not sure why we don't know the exact number of languages, but it's at least 25. In 1987, Locus ranked The Last Unicorn at number five among the 33 all-time best fantasy novels wow. uh, based on a poll of subscribers. Uh, it ranked number 18 in the 1998 rendition of the poll. Just real quick, I would bet that it says at least 25 languages that is those are like official copies. Mm. And, and I bet it says at least because I'm almost assuredly people in other places have translated it that's fair yeah but in in unofficial versions or something but yeah Uh, and aside from the 1982 film we'll be discussing the last unicorn has also been adapted for the stage in 1988 and as a six issue comic series in 2010 Hmm. uh, there are two audiobook versions including a 2004 edition narrated by the author Wow, there you go. All right, let's learn now a little bit more about the film, The Last Unicorn. All I want to know is if you've seen other unicorns like me somewhere in the world. You can find the others if you are brave. They passed down all the roads long ago, and the Red Bull ran close behind them and covered their footprints. Oh, I could never leave this forest. But I must know if I am the only unicorn left in the world. The classic tale is now a classic animated adventure. The Last Unicorn is a 1982 film directed by Jules Bass and Arthur Rankin Jr., known for The Hobbit, Frosty the Snowman, The Little Little Drummer Boy, Jack Frost, Rudolph Shiny New Year, etc., etc. Everybody knows the Rankin-Bass specials. Uh, But yes, also The Hobbit would be the other main thing Mm. uh, that people maybe weren't as familiar with. There was an animated Hobbit from the 70s that they... uh, but yeah, they, the more, this was more stylistically in line with with the Hobbit than with like the the Christmas specials. 
Yes, this movie is, yes. yes. And and we'll, we'll explore why momentarily, or at least to some <laughs> extent. Uh, it was written by Peter S. Beagle. He did the screenplay, uh, who's known for, as you mentioned, Ralph Bakshi's Lord of the Rings. One episode of Star Trek TNG, he wrote Sarek, in case I have any other TNG heads out there. Uh, he wrote the episode Sarek. Is that like an important episode? It's, 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 it's a good episode. Okay. It's just one of it. It's not like a particularly like, you know, um, but it's a good episode. Uh, but anyways, and then all the other stuff Katie mentioned earlier. Um, but he he was written in like you said in films and TV and stuff. There was nothing like huge movie wise. Like Lord, yeah, the, the Ralph Lord, Bakshi's Lord yeah, of that the was Rings kind of the, like biggest the biggest thing. thing. Yeah, other than this movie, uh, the film stars uh, just a heck of a cast: mm. Alan Arkin, Jeff Bridges, Mia Farrow, Tammy Grimes, or Grimms. I think it's Grimes. I think I just missed an E there. Robert Klein, Angela Lansbury, Christopher Lee, Keenan Wynn, Paul Fries, and Renee Aubergenois. The film has a 77% on Rotten Tomatoes, a 70% on Metacritic, and a 7.3 out of 10 on IMDb. It made $6.5 million against a budget of estimated budget of $3.5 million. Uh, and yeah, that's, those are all the stats there. So right from the very beginning, and obviously it didn't take very long because this came out in 82 and the book came out in 78. But right from the very beginning, there was interest in adapting The Last Unicorn into a film. Um, some of the people that expressed interest early on included Lee Mendelson and Bill Melendez, uh, who did the Peanuts t- television specials. Mm. Uh, apparently, though, Beagle was convinced by one of their partner's wives that they were not good enough Sabotage. to adapt his story. <laughs> That's some piping tea. Yes. Uh, so the last uh, Rankin Bass was actually the last studio that Michael Chase Walker, who was the uh, associate producer on the film, approached about adapting this this book into a movie. And apparently, uh, Stephen Beagle, Beagle was horrified uh, when he was informed that they had made a deal for the film. Apparently, Beagle hated the Hobbit adaptation that they did, and he did not like the Christmas specials at all. Um, But he met with them, and when he saw... uh, There was nothing he could do about it. They signed a contract and everything. But so eventually, when he went to meet with them and work with them, uh, he actually warmed up to them quite a bit and like really liked the ideas they had and Mm -hmm. what they were bringing to the table. And ultimately, he would go on to say, quote... I came to feel that the film is actually a good deal more than I had originally credited. There is some lovely design work. The Japanese artists who did the concepts and coloring were very good. And the voice actors do a superb job in bringing my characters to life. End quote. So speaking of the animation uh, and the Japanese artists that he mentioned, Rankin Bass uh, and several of their animated films work this way. Um, They hired out to Japanese artists Mm -hmm. to do the actual animation. Rankin Bass did the like, story like the writing and the voicing like getting yeah. the actors and doing all the voicing and stuff uh the animation was done by Topcraft in tokyo which was headed by a uh, former toei animation employee toru hara with Mas- uh, masaki iazuka being in charge of the production apparently this studio had previously animated the frosty's winter wonderland the hobbit uh and the stingiest man in town and the return of the king which was the sequel to Ralph Bakshi's Lord yes. of the Rings. They only made two. They didn't do two. Yeah. two Towers was part of, I think. Yeah, I think it was like smushed the Lord together. Lord of the Rings was like the first two movies. And then, yeah, then they did a Return of the King. Um, and other similar projects from Rankin Bass. 
Uh, and this production company would also eventually be hired by Hayao Miyazaki to work on Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, which is like one of his earlier films. Mm-hmm. And eventually the core members from Topcraft who did this movie would go on to form Studio Ghibli. Nice. So that's where this all kind of comes together. Um, so getting into some some fun facts here. Sir Christopher Lee, who plays King Haggard, apparently showed up to his recording sessions for the film uh, with his own copy of the book, as he is wont to do. <laughs> uh, anybody who knows anything about Lord of the Rings, he was always there with his book, tapping on Peter Jackson's shoulder, being like, ah. <laughs> um, but apparently he had marked several places in the book of things that must not be omitted. He was mm-hmm. like, these things have to go in. Um, and apparently he also does the voice in the German version of the movie, because I think Christopher Lee spoke German. Hmm. Or I'm pretty, like, like fairly positive. I think he spoke, like, several I, languages. You could tell me anything about it's Christopher Lee, and I would believe you. It's all you. true. He spoke, like, four languages. He murdered people. He's just... Yeah. It was a crazy individual. So, uh, in 2010, uh, Jules Bass uh, revealed that Jeff Bridges actually just straight up called him out of the blue to volunteer to work on this movie because this was one of his favorite books. And then uh, he actually would end up recommending his friend Jimmy Webb, who's like a very well-known and very uh, famous uh, singer, or not singer, songwriter, songwriter from Mm -hmm. like, uh, who's who like ghost wrote a bunch of like big hits back in the like 60s and stuff um, uh, to do the soundtrack and the score for it. Uh, apparently a live action version of the film has been kicking around in development hell for years yeah. since this movie came out. Uh, apparently it v- reaching various states of pre-production at different times. And apparently at one point they even, this would have been years ago, obviously. Uh, uh, apparently at one point Christopher Lee and Angela Lansbury were set to reprise their roles except in live action. Interesting. Which would have been very interesting. Obviously they're both dead now, so that's not <laughs> not doable anymore. Um, some fun casting options or notes. Uh, other people that were considered for the role of Schmendrick, Dustin Hoffman, Harrison Ford, and Mark Hamill. All Ooh, apparently that would have been different. Uh, other people considered for the voice of King Haggard, other than Sir Christopher Lee, John Vernon, James Earl Jones, and John Carradin. Um, so those are some other casting notes. Uh, another thing about the cast that I thought was interesting, apparently, because this is you know this is pretty uncommon just in general, and apparently was especially uncommon then. Um, uh, quite a few of the stars actually recorded their lines together, like in the studio, like back mm. and forth. Um, over the ha- over the course of like a handful of days, as opposed to just doing their own lines by themselves, mm-hmm. which again, if yeah, is is rare. It does happen occasionally, but maybe one of my favorite fun facts ever. By the way, I just gotta point this out. This had <laughs> this is on the IMDb trivia. <laughs> it had <laughs> zero out of one people found this helpful, so it may be bullshit. <laughs> I don't know. But apparently Fergie is a fan of this film and has described her younger self as being a fanatic about it, insisting that she show it at every sleepover she ever had and would often put stickers on her head and pretend to be Almothea. In 2015, Fergie attempted to produce a stage adaptation of The Last Unicorn, but it never got off the ground. Oh, which I, <laughs> I love that. I don't know why. It's just so <laughs> random that I don't know, but I love it. <laughs> Uh, and then getting to some reviews here. 
In the New York Times, uh, James Maslin called The Last Unicorn, quote, an unusual children's film in many respects, the chief one being that it is unusually good and which features a cast that would do any live action film proud, a visual style noticeably different from that of other children's fare and a story filled with genuine sweetness and mystery. Uh, regarding the ending, uh, she said, quote, no one of any age will be immune to the sentiment of the film's final moments, which really are unexpectedly touching and memorable, end quote. And then writing for Variety, Todd McCarthy praised the script and the voice acting, but did not like the animation, saying, quote, however vapid the unicorn may appear to the eye, Mia Farrow's voice brings an almost moving plaintive quality to the character. For an act actress to register so strongly on voice alone is a rare accomplishment. Uh, and unfortunately, I did quite a bit of digging, but I could not find Ebert's review of this movie. This ep this movie apparently was covered on season one, episode 11 of At the Movies with Siskel and Ebert. It's on IMDb. They covered four movies in that episode, mm -hmm. like it's listed. But I could not. F I'd searched so many different times to try to find clips or transcripts or any. I could not find anything. And I've had luck with that before. If I know it's in an episode of At yeah. the Movies, I've been able to go find that episode sometimes and like find the part where they're talking about whatever movie it is. Couldn't do it with this one. So we'll, we'll never know what Ebert thought of. <laughs> I'm just going to pretend that he gave it two thumbs up. Probably did. Honestly, <laughs> he likes weird stuff sometimes. You know, like I, I wouldn't surprise me if he did. But yeah, that's uh, no Ebert review for this one. So. Katie, where can people watch The Last Unicorn? Well, you can check with your local library or your local video rental store. If you still have one. Uh, you can stream this for free through Shout TV, a thing I've never heard of, or Plex. Mm -hmm. uh, you can also stream it with ads through Peacock, the Roku channel, Vudu, Tubi, and Freebie. Yeah, I was say, I saw it on Tubi when I yeah. Googled it. Tubi popped right up. But yeah, they, there are, and there's not usually a ton of ads on, mm -hmm. on Tubi. It's usually like, you know, a yeah, few but, ads. But if, you, if you're looking to stream this for free, you've got yeah, some options. You've got some options. Uh, otherwise, you can rent it for between 2 and $4 through Redbox, Amazon, Vudu, Apple TV, or YouTube. Absolutely. I'm very much looking forward to this, having never heard of it uh, and being the only one, according to our poll. Um, <laughs> There's some other people who, who said they yeah, have not heard of it. Most people have. Most people had heard of it. Yes. I'm, I'm legitimately surprised that I hadn't, especially considering my dad liked yeah, weird I, animation. I'm a little surprised really that surprised. this one didn't come up on the. My dad has watched so many weird, like, now to be fair, I think part of it is. I don't know, because I knew my dad liked a lot of weird animation, but I didn't actually watch a lot of it when I was young until I got older. And then maybe because like I never watched like the Lord of the Rings, like Ralph Bakshi's yeah. Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit as a kid. I think I might have watched The Hobbit and got too I, scared. <laughs> I was kid. terrified of of the Rankin Bass Hobbit yeah. as a child, like I, straight up <laughs> terrified. Um, I did not watch The Last Unicorn until I was older, like college maybe. Yeah. Um, which is probably good because I think I would have been terrified of yeah. it. Um I have actually never read the book. So I'm very excited to to How read it. How long is it? How the long book. is the book? Yeah. Um it's fourteen chapters. <laughs> I don't, I don't know a page count off the okay. top of my head. It's not super long. Not super long. No. So I was wondering, you know, if it's like a four or five hundred page or like a no, 200. No, it's more in the, in the 200, 250, 250 okay. uh, range. Um, so I'm very excited. Um, hope you're ready to watch me cry on the couch. I, I mean, sure, yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. It's fine. 
What? Nothing. I cry on the couch all the time. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> Say it like it's a weird thing. I, yeah. Fine. Um, but yeah, no, like I said, I'm very excited to watch it. Uh, again, having never heard of it, I, I, I'm super excited to hear the score. So apparently the score is amazing. Mm-hmm. Everybody says this, the music, like the soundtrack for this is incredible. It was actually like the number one album in Germany when this movie came out. Mm. But they never released the soundtrack in the U.S. for whatever reason. Interesting. But it like it blew up in Germany and was like this huge sensation over there. Just the soundtrack, which I thought was really <laughs> also really interesting. Um, but anyways, uh, I, I, yeah, like I said, I'm very much looking forward to this one. I I, I want to see the weird, uh, <laughs> weird 70s anim or 80s animation. Um, well, you're gonna see a lot of it. Can't wait. Can't wait. Come back in one week's time. We're talking about. The Last Unicorn. Until that time, guys, gals, non-binary pals, everybody else. Keep reading books. Keep watching movies. And keep keep being being awesome. awesome.